Welcome to Angels Live, a podcast talking to angel investors and entrepreneurs. In our episodes, we will dive into the why and how our guests got started and what's important navigating the startup journey. This is where you can learn more about how jobs are created, innovation is sparked, and tap into what's happening in your local community. I'm Marsha Dawood. And I'm Warren Spiewak. Our mission is to be your gateway to the Angel Capital Association and an inside look into the startup world. So Marsha, you've got a great guest for us today. It sounds like we're not just going to talk about the fact that he's an angel, but this is someone who's contributing to multiple angel groups. Am I right? Yes. We're going to talk today to Tim McLaughlin, who is part of Co-Founders Capital in the great state of North Carolina, which is where I am living right now. So I'm excited to hear all about the things that are going on on the eastern side of the state as I live on the western side of the state. And uh, he has two funds. Um, the first fund was $12 million, the second fund, $31 million, and the second fund is where they are um, deploying capital right now. So we're going to get to hear about what does that mean to deploy capital and um, what types of companies do they look at and uh, what types of entrepreneurs are they talking to and mostly because they're doing a lot of uh, B2B software. So I'm interested to hear about that. And Tim has also recently started a podcast called First Check. And I want to hear a little bit about what that means because we as angels know what it means to write the first check. So uh, excited about that. So Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Good to be here. So I can't help but just to start it off, maybe walk us through like your life today. Like where is your time going from obviously being an angel and being part of co-founders capital, but also this work that I understand you're doing, where essentially you're helping or talking to several different uh, angel groups. Yeah, sure. So um, my my primary job, what I'm doing full-time is I'm a partner at Co-Founders Capital. So as Marsha had mentioned, we're investing out of our second fund, which is uh, a $31 million fund, and we're investing at the earliest stages. So we're investing in companies that are pre-revenue, uh, sometimes pre or just at product. Um, and the majority of my time is spent helping those companies as they grow and scale. So making an investment, helping them grow and scale, recruit the right management teams. Part of helping those teams is raising follow-on rounds of funding. So raising additional capital or finding people to round out certain rounds. And a lot of those groups that I work with are other angel groups and individual angels, primarily across the state of North Carolina. So just last night, I was on with a great angel group, RTP Capital, talking to five of their members about an open round of one of our portfolio companies that we've invested in and just helping them answer questions and talk about that investment. So, so Tim, we've been throwing a lot of uh, terms around. We threw around like follow-on funding, yeah. B2B software companies, early stage. Well, yep. So let's start to dissect a little bit. So your fund invests in you know super early uh B2B software. So tell us what you're really looking for in the companies you want to see. 
Yeah, and and I think it's important to say when you raise a venture capital fund and you take money from people, you have a, a certain thesis of the types of companies that you're going to invest in. And so some of the things in our thesis are the stage of the company. So let's break that down. When I say seed stage, I'm talking the earliest stages of a company. Some people break it down to pre-seed and seed. When I say seed, I'm talking about companies that typically don't have any revenue yet or just have a little bit of revenue. So maybe a few thousand dollars a month in revenue. Um, but we're not investing in companies that are doing millions of dollars in revenue already and are at a growth stage in their company's life. Um, the next stage is the type of company, not the stage, but the type of company, B2B software. So a company whose primary offering is a software product and it's a business selling to other businesses as opposed to a B2C company, a business to consumer, or maybe it's a consumer app and the consumer's paying a few dollars a month, just a regular consumer. So we're really focused on the business to business software offerings. That's kind of the focus of our fund. Can you give us a couple examples of types of companies? You don't have to say more if you don't want. No, sure. I, I'm happy to do it. We're uh, a great example of a company that we've invested in is uh, a company called CureMint. Curement is a dental procurement software, so it's sold to uh, dentist offices and normally big groups of dental dental practices that have hundreds of offices to help them with their purchasing, ordering, inventory uh, in the dental offices. That might be a good example of one. Uh, another one we're investing in is a company called Relay One. Relay One helps operating rooms and the staff, including the surgeon. Uh, external vendors like med device reps that might need to be part of the surgical communication and care team. Uh, we help uh, collaboration and communication among those teams to help surgeries get started on time, um, surgeries you know perform better, uh, outcomes for patients be better. And so those are examples. And we're in, we've invested in 29 companies over the last uh, five and a half years. Um, and so those are kind of some examples. Wow. And how do you find companies usually? Well, events like this, hopefully it gets out to the next great company that wants to come and talk to me. But um, uh, so we are we have a co-working space in the town of Cary, North Carolina. So it's free rent for uh, for companies that can come work out of our accelerator or used to work out of our accelerator. It hasn't been very, very crowded over the last year. Um, but we're also uh, members of um, nonprofit organizations, the Council for Entrepreneurial Development. I'm on the board of in North Carolina. We work very closely with seed grant uh, nonprofit or private foundations that are giving away grants to early stage companies. So that's a good source of, you know, a highly curated list of companies that we might be invested in. I uh, do a ton of judging at, at the local universities, companies that are coming out there, uh, out of there. Um, so just, and then just the network, right? Constantly getting referrals from your attorneys, uh, your accountants, uh, other funds, other angel groups that I work with, and just build up a, a good network. And do you only invest in companies in North Carolina? Primarily. Um, so one of the focuses we talked about a fund thesis is that when we raised money from investors in our fund, we told them that the money would be deployed primarily in their own backyard. Most of our investors are from North Carolina and they wanna see their money deployed locally. Um, we're not required to, we have several investments outside of the state. We had one in DC, one in Virginia, one in Atlanta. Um, but this is where our network is. And we think that companies around here, if we can pair them up with our network, we're gonna be more successful investing locally.
So tell us a little more about the angel community in, in the Raleigh-Durham area. Sure. So uh, I've been working with the angel community here for the last six or seven years. Um, there are several groups and different types of groups in the community, I'm sure, which you've talked to your audience about before. But you have angel groups, angel networks, and then angel funds. Uh, an angel network might be a group of individual angels that get together to help each other share diligence, but make investing decisions independently on their own. Normally, the network will decide whether or not a, a company that presents is worth going to diligence. Um, and then individual angels can decide whether to invest. And then we have angel funds, which are smaller groups made up of you know, high net worth or, or other angels um, that decide as a group whether or not they all want to pool their money and invest. And so um, I, I've worked and co-invested with probably eight, I'd say, uh, angel networks or angel funds across the state. And there's new ones popping up all the time with different focus and different theses, theses. Um, some that are university specific, some that um, have a certain type of companies that they like to look at. But um, it's it's a thriving and growing uh, community here in North Carolina. And that's basically because there are some really great universities over there. Ooh, my alma mater, <laughs> UNC Chapel Hill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I got my MBA at UNC and I'm over there talking to all the entrepreneurs coming out of that university uh, constantly. And actually, we're hoping to close a deal this week with the uh, Carolina Angel Network. They won't be upset with me saying this, but uh, as co-investors in a, in a round of one of our existing portfolio companies, and they have hundreds of angel investors that are part of that group, and they invest in companies that have some tie uh, to the university. That's great. So coming from a standpoint of pre-revenue, right? I, I would imagine as an entrepreneur, you know, a lot of them talk about the challenge of being pre-revenue because you want to, you know, when you stand in front of an angel group, you want those investors to not just have to believe what vision you're laying out. You kind of want to prove it. And there's no better way to do that than say, look, here's all my customers. Here's all the money we're making now. But that's not the case a lot of times. And then from an investor standpoint, there's a lot of angel investors that when it comes to pre-revenue, they're wanting to know how do they measure the, you know, the unmeasurable yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know how to describe it, but there's certain things you just can't put on scale. You have to trust your instinct or whatnot. What are some of the things being that this is kind of something you specialize in that you look for advice you would give not only to an entrepreneur, but also someone who's considering investing in a very early stage company? Yeah. So I would break down uh, the company and into what the assumptions are that are driving their business model. So I'll give you an example. Some of, some of the companies that we look at, some of the assumptions that drive their business model might be, what can they charge a customer? How many customers can they pick up in a given month? Um, are there expansion opportunities inside of that customer base? How many salespeople would I need to hire over what period of time to help me grow? And what I always say is the more of those assumptions that an entrepreneur can prove out, the higher the valuation of that company. If I have 5,000 customers that are paying an average price of $5,000 a month, let's say, well, I have some pretty good proof points and I can validate that's what I can continue to do in the market. So when you get earlier and earlier and earlier and have less proof points, the valuation of the company is typically lower and lower and lower. And so as an angel investor, you have to decide or a fund, you have to decide what level of risk do you want to take? And then how can you jump in and still get traction and, and some proof points around those assumptions? 
one of the things that we do is we talk to a lot of industry experts. We talk to a lot of potential customers and we say, here are the um, assumptions that are driving the model. Are these reasonable? Would you as a customer ever pay $5,000 a month for this type of product? Would it create enough value? We talk to other salespeople in the industry. Is securing two or three of these customers a month, is that a reasonable assumption that you think can, you know, you can carry on for the next two, three, four years to grow this business? And so even though we haven't proven it, we're testing those assumptions and we're getting some confidence around, right, the validity of those assumptions when we're in diligence. Does it change the cadence at all? Like for an example, if, if I'm a founder, an entrepreneur that's created something and I can prove we've got $3 million in sales, I feel like I could walk in the room and everyone sees what I'm talking about and potentially knows that they want to invest. I, I wonder if the cadence is different in what you're doing because of the fact that maybe these people, because of what you're talking about, a little bit of research that's needed, maybe a little bit of uh, additional information. Do you find that you're meeting these entrepreneurs more like maybe one to two, three more times than an average angel deal? Probably. I, I would say that, but it works both ways. I'd say that it allow, it gives us more time to get comfortable and test the assumptions since they haven't already been proven out. But on the flip side, it's less likely that there's going to be a quick investment made by somebody else into a deal and I'm going to miss out on it. So typically, the earlier the stage, the less willing investors there are to get in at that early stage, which is one of the reasons we need to expand the angel population that's writing checks. Make it a little harder on me and make me move a little bit quicker. That'd be nice. Um, but, but normally, I have that time. And then you also kind of can set and say, hey, I need to give myself 90 days to get comfortable with it. But if I do get comfortable, here are some general terms, which is normally what's all provided in what we call the term sheet, which is in 90 days, I'm going to decide to make an investment. But in exchange for all of the time and effort I'm going to put into deciding whether or not I want to invest, we're kind of pre-agreeing that after 90 days, I'm going to be able to invest on these, these terms. Wow, that's really interesting. I, you know, this is for me the first time I've heard it. I, you know, I, being around Marsha and being in a lot of the interactions that I have with her from her angel background and what she's doing with the Angel Capital Association, and then listening to you, it's like how interesting when, you know, pretty much any consumer, any average person understands like real estate contracts where you have like <laughs> a little bit of time to do an inspection, if you will. And what's really neat to hear is that you guys are able to do that in the angel world and really um, kind of answer some of your questions before you put pen to paper on the checkbook. Yeah, it, it is a it's a challenge to figure out where the right time is to kind of pre-agree to those terms because you are signaling, hey, I'm interested in this. And you're giving the entrepreneur hope that they're going to get an investment. And so you don't want to do it too early. You want to make sure that it's, you know, your, your intention is to invest if you prove things out. But you don't want to wait too long and spend too much time researching the company. Think, let's use your house, for example. What if you went and you wanted to do all that work on a house to decide whether or not you wanted to buy, but you didn't know what the price was until the end, right? At right. some point in the process, it's the right time to come to an agreement on what, what that price is. And same thing for the angel investor. And and in the mo most cases, I would say that the entrepreneur is presenting ter terms that the angel investor is going to know up front. 
or or somebody else has set the terms that the angel investor will be investing on. Some other fund, some other lead group has already set the terms. And if those terms have been set, the angel investor in meeting number one or number two can say, hey, I'm interested. What are the terms of the of the investment? And then, you know, the rest of the research can be based off of those terms. So you talked about you write checks at the very earliest time. Um, and so you're seeing some companies when they haven't had any funding yet. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, I'd say uh, uh, probably 60 to 75 percent of, of the deals we've done were the first investor. Some have raised small friends and family rounds um, and, you know, outside of traditional like angel groups. Um, but we come in a lot of times over half the time, definitely, where there hasn't been any other investment. And then you mentioned uh, follow-on funding. So without getting into too much in the weeds here, because we could go down that, we could have a whole hour-long episode on uh, follow-on funding. But tell us a little bit about how do you decide when you're going to follow on, what does exactly mean, and then how much of your fund is allocated to that? All good questions. And it's it's evolving because I don't know exactly what the right answer is, but I'll give you I'll give you real hard numbers. In our first fund, which was a twelve million dollar fund, fifty percent of that ca- of the capital we invested was for initial investments, the first check that we wrote out of the fund, and fifty percent of the capital we invested was for follow on investments. In our second fund, we've shifted that a little bit, and it's going to probably wind up being about thirty five percent for initial investments and sixty five percent for follow on investments. So, so I just have a quick question to follow on. Uh, so you're basically saying someone got their initial investment from you and then they kind of burn through the money, if you will, or whatever the technical term is, they, they, they leverage it, but they have to come back. They have to come back and knock on the door and say, hey, we need another round, if you will. Here, here's the dirty little secret. Whether the company is doing really well or the company is doing really bad, they need more money. And so they're going to go back. Their closest source of capital is their current investor base. And often they're going to go first back to their current investor base. And if you're going to participate and make another investment into that company, sometimes you're going to get a better deal than an outside investor will get because you can do it quickly. You can provide that capital to them quickly. So it seems like, you know, I need to reserve as an angel, you should reserve follow on funding for your portfolio companies. But the hardest thing you're ever going to face is having to say no to a company that you're already invested in. That is the hardest thing to do um, because almost, in my experience, no founder, no entrepreneur has ever come back to me. And Marsh and I were talking about this and said, you know what? This just isn't working. I have no chance of making this a success. I know I've poured four years of my life into it, but I'm done. Right. I don't need any more of your money. I'm going to return whatever money I have in the bank. Yeah. It's always the other side, which is right around the corner. This company is about to take off. And all I need is an extra three hundred thousand or four hundred thousand dollars. And so that is one of the challenges that you're going to have to face. And angel investors need to work with people that are close with the company and working with the company on a regular basis and getting signals from those folks as to whether or not there's a real opportunity around the corner. Wow. And, you know, Tim, we could talk about 
how do angels and I'm stereotyping here, but as a whole, angels are not great at following on. It's kind of like they see the new company that they like and they're like, oh, I like that company. I want to put money into that. And and so they're, to all angels credit, they're, uh, they don't have a lot of capital to put to work. So you're right. It, it's a discipline to put money aside and say, hey, I'm going to help this company down the road, which I think is a, a great reason why funds are so important. They're important because they're that next step past the individual angel who can help to grow the company and have they have the discipline and they have it written in their documents that they're going to keep money set aside in order to help them grow. So you don't just see them run out of cash and then they go out of business. Well, this, and this is, this is interesting. I, sorry, Tim, I'm just going to say, it's like what you guys are talking about is angel investors doubling down, essentially saying, Hey, we, we think we got a good hand, or maybe at this point, because enough time has gone by, maybe they have a little bit of doubt. But you guys are always in this um, analysis mode of deciding, will you continue on and do this double down or will you not? Well, the, the, the question is whether you have a winning hand in it and you know that you want to put the money in the table. Right? I played a little poker in my day, right? So, which is a lot like my day job now. But what I say is either you, you know you have the winning hand and you want to put more, as much money into the, into the pot as you possibly can. Or you're willing to pay to flip another card. And the analogy I always give is you want to make sure when that next card is flipped, you know whether or not you won the hand. And so that's the real thing that I challenge angel investors and even us at a venture capital fund is when we're making a follow-on investment to flip another card, are we going to know whether we won the hand or are we going to have to pay again to still try to figure it out? And that's just a good way, I think, to try to think about it. And another um, interesting point here is, you know, Tim, you have these two funds, $12 million and $31 million, which seem like a ton of money. And it and it is considering that you're investing at the seed level, like the very earliest level. And honestly, if there weren't funds like yours, we, we need them so badly. It's just so, so important, the work that you're doing. So I really commend it. But in venture capital world, a $12 million fund and even a $31 million fund is like baby small. Yeah. And um, so, you know, playing in this angel space for that size of fund, I think is fantastic that you're, you know, really true to the mission of helping these companies to grow, working alongside the angels that are in your community, and then helping those entrepreneurs in these areas that are not, you know, Silicon Valley, New York, and all these big cities that you hear about, and actually looking for the interesting innovation that's coming out of the universities that are in your area. Yeah, the you know, the, the, there's a lot of great synergies between the venture funds that have full-time professional diligence. Um, but still, we're, venture capital funds are limited to a certain check size and need the ability to have flexibility at rounding out around. So when I say rounding out around, let's say a company needs a million dollars. But for me to do the right thing by my fund, it's not to write a million dollar check. It's to write a $750,000 check. And then how do we fill the remainder of the $250,000? One of the rounds I had already mentioned on this podcast, we're putting together a $3 million round right now. And almost all of the capital is coming from angel investors. 
Wow. I'd say, I'd say less than a third of that is coming from actual institutional funds. So the power of an angel network or group, uh, it can be really strong and really impactful, but there's synergies between the folks that are doing full-time diligence and the, and the angels. The other thing that's great about bringing angel investors on and angel groups on is just the uh, diversity of the people, their experiences, the mind power that's go- around the table, where if you get an angel investor into your company, that's a, one more network that you have at your disposal if that angel is willing to share their network or share their knowledge. And so getting smart people around the table that can help is really important. So here's a question I have almost for both of you guys, you know, the Angel Capital Association, from what I've always seen, and I'm going back a few years now, is you have hundreds of angel groups that are all tied together. And then there's always this thing that can happen, which is syndication, where you have one group sharing the story of a, of a portfolio company to hopefully get additional dollars across, maybe from across the country of angels that are paying attention to it. My question is, is with what you're doing, if we were to, if we're looking at, let's just say 280 different angel groups, is what you're doing kind of like a, a feeder group almost that helps other angel groups that are maybe more conservative and don't like as early investments see more deal flow? You want me to take that one first, Marcia? So, so I have a, I have a monthly uh, angel syndicate meeting is the name of what we do. And so all of the different angel groups and early stage venture funds like co-founders capital, we all sit around and we take turns sharing deal, deal flow, sharing information that we have on companies or founders, even if they're not in our portfolio. And it can range from the angel groups are providing deal flow to co-founders capital. It could be co-founders capital is providing uh, deals to the angel groups. So we've maybe de-risked them, maybe they've de-risked them, or we're trying to syndicate and fill out a round together. Um, and in that last deal I, I mentioned, just a good example, this $3 million round that we're, we're talking about, I'd say four or five of the groups that are in that angel syndicate meeting are investors in this current round. And so it just shows you that, and they've all come in at different times, some earlier, some later, but it just shows you the power of that syndication model and having that network. And so now, you know, there's a lot of different angels and angel groups on the on the cap table. So the ownership levels of what everyone has in the company, you know, of this company that we're raising capital for. Yeah, it's so important to have investors be together at this early stage. You know, you don't want just one or two people. You Like Tim said, you need the network. Uh, you need to be able to have that power to follow on later um, and really build the company. And building the company is hard. <laughs> it's not like you just make the investment and then you kind of like close your eyes and pray for a little while and like think three to five years later, you're going to wake up and woo, cool, there's an exit. I mean, this is like hard ups and downs and crazy things going on. But So in terms of angel groups, I mean, here it is, you have yours and you're obviously working with other groups as well. For a listener, some, you know, some of our listeners are angel investors, but of course, some are entrepreneurs and some are just people that are listening to learn more and maybe consider dipping their toe in the water, if you will. Do you mind talking a little bit about who you were before you were an angel? And then also... Um, when it comes to the contributions you can make, when I it doesn't always have to be financial. People can come to these meetings 
ask great questions before they ever write a check and really learn who their counterparts are in these groups. Am I right about that? Or is there anything you would kind of clarify for someone who might just be kind of on the fence and wanting to learn more about participating? Yeah, I'll, so I'll, I'll go back and tell you a story a little bit. And this is how I think maybe uh, this might be helpful for some of the angel or potential angels that are listening is when I first re started reviewing plans, there's a the private foundation that I would see three to 600 plans a year that I would get to look at, review, and kind of start a funnel to which ones were ultimately maybe the best opportunities. Of course, you don't ever pick the best opportunities. You miss some along the way, but you start to put a process in place. I remember the first three or four plans that I looked at, I thought were phenomenal. I thought they were all can't miss. Where's my checkbook? Let me get it out. Let me invest in this company and let's go. And then all of a sudden I got to company 10, 12, 155. And I looked back and I said, what was I thinking with that first one and that second one? And so there's a lot of pattern recognition. You need to, you need to be in it and see it for a little while. And then leverage the network, leverage your other angels, level, leverage the ACA to help you as you make these decisions. Because if I took that first deal and I only had that first deal, if I at least asked some other professional investors that have been doing this for a while, what do you think? They would have told me right away, you're out of your mind if you're going to write a check into this business. And so what you need to do if you're getting into it, don't be intimidated. Just take some time. It's okay if you don't write a check at the first meeting. It's not okay if you don't write a check for the first six months or a year. But be around, see deals, see pattern recognition, and then talk to other experts that have been doing it for a while so that your learning curve can be much quicker um, to when you write that first check. It's great. So tell us a little about first check. Sure. So I, I am very new to the podcast game. Um, but I started about four months ago uh, interviewing angel investors, other venture capitalists and entrepreneurs and talking to them about what it was like writing or receiving their first check, um, and which can be a challenge for, entre for entrepreneurs and for investors um, to do that. And so I've gotten some great perspectives, some great stories, uh, some great insights and tips for other angel investors. Uh, on how maybe the questions they should be asking in diligence, uh, maybe some red flags they should be looking out for, and then some interesting perspectives from entrepreneurs about what they hated during the diligence process. What can an angel investor do that would really upset them, right? Um, the types of questions or the way they asked them. Uh, and so I, I just always was having these conversations and I wanted to kind of organize them and structure them. And so that's what we did. And so uh, March third, the podcast will be launching its first episode. Uh, you can find it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Um, again, it's called First Check, and we'll be launching a new episode every week. Well, congratulations. That's a big deal. You know, um, I think, you know, just kind of Marsha and I talk about this all the time. You know, we, we interview people consistently every week, and it's really sharing information and showing entrepreneurs and investors that we're all human, right? Like we're all balancing risk and wanting to be conservative, but this is really fun. Like the, the angel world is something where what, you know, the more I meet the people that we're interviewing and I talk to them, this is a passion for them. It's something they do almost from like a, it, it has a spiritual element to it as well. So to think that your show actually talks about 
some of the nerve wracking parts of, <laughs> of really doing that first investment as an, as an investor or even receiving that very first check. I'm sure there's a lot of elation. Uh, I'm very interested to listen to the show and I'll definitely be tuning in. Great. Well, thank you. Great. Thanks, Tim, for coming on today. Appreciate thank it. You. It was fun. Thank you for having me. Hey guys, Marsha here. Just a reminder, for more information, you can go to angelcapitalassociation.org or if you're looking to connect with Angels Live, you can go to the show notes. Thanks for listening.